0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast
1: to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Antonio Chacha. He is probably known by most listeners by now, but he's the Chief Strategy Officer for 3XS Advisors and also serves as a Senior Advisor to APHA. Uh, Kind of under his belt, as we're going to talk about provider status today, uh, he helped get provider status kind of passed, and unanimously so, in Ohio, and is also working on kind of implementing it with some of the other smaller places in Ohio as like kind of a testing site for it. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Antonio Chacha.
0: Great to be with you, Eric.
1: Hey, and as always, thanks for the work you've you've done with pharmacy. You've been a huge leader in it. But like I said earlier, we're here today to discuss kind of provider status, since it's now been presented in, I believe, the U.S. Senate. And can you kind of briefly discuss what provider status is for pharmacists in regards to Medicare B, where it's been introduced into Congress, and and also who introduced it and kind of what this bill does.
0: So when we we talk about provider status, there's a lot of different lenses with which some look at it. But the way that I view provider status is the ability to to be compensated for services that you render to a patient. Now, pharmacists, obviously, the primary form of of reimbursement and compensation in pharmacy is derived through the dispensing process. Pharmacists have a huge role and responsibility and provide a huge value in that dispensing service because of the over-concentration of the incentives in pharmacy on dispensing. A lot of the other more clinical services that pharmacists provide don't really have a form of accounting in the business model. Um, there's an old adage, no margin, no mission. Well, we know on the dispensing side, the margins are declining, which means that the ability for altruism in the pharmacy business model is becoming more and more constrained. And so because of that, we don't see pharmacists being engaged in a lot of ways that actually can help manage a patient's chronic disease states, bring them to better outcomes. We see, an adv- we see advancements of scope of practice in states across the country but then, in the pharmacies, we don't see those services actually being implemented, and that's largely because if you don't have a payment mechanism, we don't. Most pharmacists aren't volunteers, so um, until you have a payment mechanism for the services that you offer, you can understand that you will probably not be offering those services <laughs> in your pharmacy.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things too. Like you said, we're not volunteers. We do have to go to school. We do have to pay to go to school and then pay off that debt that we take on as well as just to live our lives, right? Like we should be reasonably compensated so we can, I don't want to say live comfortable, but live a life and be able to support ourselves on that. Uh, So again, that's kind of why providers is so big as we can start expanding on some of that. I think that's. That's huge because we are seeing, like you said, movement in states to ask us to do more, but we're not seeing the compensation that follows it, and that's huge. And we've seen that especially with this pandemic. So kind of moving with that, what triggered this bill? Was it the pandemic, or was it just the way pharmacists stepped up, or what was the trigger that you kind of imagine with this?
0: So, I mean, far, I would argue that provider status is long overdue, and I think most pharmacists would agree with that. The problem is, is, that pharmacy has never been one of the sexier, or shiny objects in Congress. Yeah, you know, most people get elected to deal with gun control, abortion, and things like that. And when it comes to healthcare, there are there are professions that are better known and better understood, and have a perceived better value proposition than pharmacists. You know, most people think of pharmacists as just dispensers, you know, pill counters. We obviously know that that's not the case, but those are the perception issues the the, the profession is faced. What makes this unique is that, you know, pharmacists have have really stood up um, and delivered during the pandemic. People are looking at pharmacy differently. Additionally, you're seeing a lot of issues with inequity in healthcare, a lot of underserved communities that don't have access to a lot of the services that exist in some of the wealthier communities. Provider status provides a mechanism with which we can incent more investment in services in underserved communities. And then, and then lastly, we're seeing more and more momentum at the state level. More states are recognizing pharmacists as providers. And so it is not as foreign of a concept as it was even just four years ago. So in many regards, we should have already had it. But it does feel like provider status is a time that's come.
1: Yeah, and you know, to that point, too, exactly what you are saying about us not being recognized, I still to this day have people walk up to my counter and go, I know you're not a doctor, but I'm like, well, I'm not a doctor of medicine, but I'm a doctor of pharmacy, and there's a lot of overlap in, in that field, if you will. And many times when I'm talking to nurse practitioners, they're calling me asking me kind of either what to prescribe or what to change, or they'll just tell me, yeah, whatever you want to change it to, that's fine. And they have that inherent level of trust because they know that I am – able and well-educated enough to be able to make those decisions to help them take care of their patients. So I totally agree with you on that. And I think that's just another shining example. And it is interesting that, you know, gun control does affect a lot of people, but healthcare affects every single American at some point. So I think that it's one of those things that might not be sexy, but it literally impacts every single person. So it does have to be talked about to some level. The other, the other thing that you kind of mentioned there was You know, we've seen individual states pass provider status. Our home state of Ohio did it. You've been a huge reason that it did. And what are some of the early results or things that you can kind of talk about that we're seeing here from pharmacists who are practicing using provider status to their fullest level of education?
0: Well, it's it's been the most rewarding thing I've been able to do is is be involved in the implementation of provider status uh, in Ohio. We've had a great team with Stu Beatty, Miriam, Sean Hada, and Michael Murphy, uh, where we're actually working with pharmacists that are interacting and engaged with Medicaid managed care plans. You know, so Eric, you know, I mean, I've been an author of the side for managed care plans for a long time because <laughs> yep. of some of the stuff on the PBM side. So the ability for us to actually work collaboratively is quite foreign to me. And it's, it's been inspiring. Um, plans like United Healthcare, CareSource, Molina, Centene, Humana, these plans all have initiatives that are off the ground where they are paying pharmacists as clinicians, paying them to manage a patient's drug therapy, paying the pharmacist to uh, assess social determinants of health, paying a pharmacist to do post discharge medication reconciliations. All of these things that the plans are are feeling an opportunity that they can improve their HEDIS measures, make their patients better, and avoid unnecessary hospitalizations. So these aren't just, you know, PGY-617 pharmacists. (laughs) These are RPH pharmacists that have been working in FQHC settings, rural health systems, working in, uh, you know, a, a more robust independent pharmacy and others that are just in rural communities where you walk in and it's greeting cards and wood paneling. These <laughs> pharmacists, you know, have never had this, these types of expectations above uh, for them. And it didn't take a residency in order for them to figure out how to actually help make these patients better. So the pharmacists at Franklin pharmacy up in Warren, Ohio, the pharmacist at Brewster family pharmacy in Brewster, Ohio, Zeke's pharmacy in Dayton, All of these pharmacies have stood up and didn't have to go through a robust amount of training. All they needed were new expectations and new incentives where they're actually paid in a way where they can start pivoting their business model. And the plans, they had the first sip of Kool-Aid, then they came back for seconds of the Kool-Aid, and now we're getting to the point where they're starting to say, hey, you know what? We need some gallons and kegs of Kool-Aid.
1: And I think that's huge because... Obviously, they wouldn't be doing this if they weren't getting either better outcomes and or saving money or both. And exactly what you're saying and what I've heard specifically from Zeke's Pharmacy on the recent Ohio Pharmacy Association meeting is they're really putting out some amazing measures that are improving people's lives, whether it be adherence, changing things, whatever, whatever specifically it is that they're doing. I don't want to go too much. That's a whole nother episode. But they're really impacting people in a positive way. And you know, even not in Ohio, we've seen people, and I've mentioned this a few times, like Victoria Reinhardt's down in Florida where she's working with a paramedicine group, essentially acting as a provider, even though she's not getting paid for it a whole bunch with the way their program was up. She did get grants, but they showed huge financial savings with this for what is like, a, I don't know, 100 to one return on the investment, something crazy like that, where you're able to actually go in there and, and impact people, save money, keep them out of ERs, and we all know too that there's a shortage of medical doctors in the US right whether it be primary care whether it be ER whatever it is there's a general shortage of them even cardiac uh, thoracic surgeons uh, there's a shortage of and yes nurse practitioners have stepped up but why wouldn't we want to use somebody who has a doctorate level education in managing medicine or managing their medications whatever you term you want to use who knows the person who sees them often and who has super open availability like why would you not employ that to drive down costs and that's kind of what you were hitting at, if i understood correctly right
0: absolutely you got patients that are walking in sometimes picking up 10 12 15 20 medications every month and you have a six to eight year doctorate level healthcare professional that is standing you know six ten feet away from that patient on a month by month basis you have an opportunity to engage that patient now they could do a number of things they could you know assess their A1C, they can just have a conversation, any of those things. But the hardest thing to do sometimes is actually get a patient to engage with a provider because it's, a, it's largely inconvenience for them. Yep. So here you have 12 opportunities if they're getting monthly refills for you to make an engagement with that patient. So the health plans, I think, while they didn't understand the value proposition of pharmacy, when you boiled it down to just that sim- simple of a level, you have a doctor, a pharmacy standing there, do you want them to just pass the pills and say, see you next month, or do you want to do something more with that? And so for provider status at the federal level, in Medicare, now we see an opportunity to actually engage seniors who have more compelling needs than a lot of the patients that are coming into the pharmacy. So this is where this represents a huge opportunity to fill care gaps that exist today. And for the pharmacists out there, and one thing I always am cognizant of, and Eric, I know this is top of mind for you and me, you know, in our home state of Ohio, we know that there's a lot of workplace condition issues right now. Yes, that you just know, came out. <laughs> are being, yep, they're being stretched to the brink. And pharmacists, I'm sure a pharmacist sitting there who's working, slaving away at a, you know, an XYZ pharmacy right now is saying, oh my God, provider status, is going to be more stuff for me to do. The thing that I will say is, yes, it will be more things for you to do. But the benefit here is that, we're actually evaluating the outcome of the patient under provider status. So, if you're understaffed and overworked, you're not going to help a patient. Provider status provides the incentives for businesses to start de- de- deploying pharmacists in new ways. And the only ways that to do that is typically through an actual longitudinal relationship with the patient, where you're actually spent, sitting down with them, spending time with them, and assessing their needs and helping bring them to goal. Until we start moving incentives or pivoting those incentives into the care and the outcome of the patient, it's just going to be fill more and fill faster. So it adds some accountability through incentive design to actually start changing the pharmacy practice model. That's exciting.
1: And on top of that, that's what we're trained to do. Like, I mean, I'll admit I have forgotten some stuff from school, but we do CE every year. There's things we have to watch out for medication safety. We've all seen MTM integrated, which is essentially a form of provider status in and of itself. And this is really what we're supposed to do. This is also probably for most people, the most rewarding part. Now, it does take a little more work, a little more cognitive services, obviously, like you said, a little more brain power than lick, stick, fill, repeat. But it's honestly the best part of our job. It's the interaction, the part that, you know, keeps people from yelling at us because now they understand what we're there and what we do and what level of education we have so that we can impact their lives for the better. So I think that's a great synopsis of it. Uh, You know, one thing too with this, and it's kind of the way it's being introduced, is to help improve access to care, specifically rural areas, if I read it right, obviously rural access issues. But don't you think this would also do the same thing in major urban areas because of some of the issues they have whether it be commuting or lack of funds or heck lack of internet issues
0: so the house bill that was introduced it is the underserved it's in underserved areas and that is a term of art federally so underserved does not necessarily mean rural uh there are underserved parts of urban areas as well if you look at maps it was funny i was looking at this when we were looking at COVID 19 vaccine distributions and actually, well, there was a map that was making its, around, it made its way around social media that was showing vaccine access in Akron, Ohio. And they put the pharmacies on a map and then overlaid demographics information about the populations. And you could see very clearly a very densely populated in, uh, part, of, part of Akron where there's a lot of poor uh, and disadvantaged uh, members, uh, individuals living there. There was sparse pharmacy access relative to other areas around Akron. That's true in cities across the country. So any area that is designated as, quote, underserved by the federal government would be empowered to start deploying pharmacists in new, innovative ways. That's going to help because, obviously, it increases the incentives for those pharmacies to start offering services. But if you take just one step forward on that, understand that these areas have not been historically in well invested in with healthcare infrastructure, pharmacy included. When you create new revenue opportunities for pharmacy businesses in those areas, well now you're starting to incent more infrastructure buildup in those underserved communities. So it's exciting in that it hopefully will help achieve some balance in health equity because you're putting incentives in places where today they just don't exist.
1: Yeah. So we're improving health equity and also driving down costs at the same time while also possibly promoting small businesses. So I think that that's an awesome way to look at employing more people and getting more people kind of on those front lines helping. So that's a a great way of looking at it. And it's kind of telltale to me because Akron's only, depending on what part, 20 to 30 minutes from my front doorstep. So it's not very far from my own house. And that's just kind of shows you exactly kind of the areas we're talking about are all over the place. So Anything else you want to uh, communicate here before we kind of give a little last minute call to action on where people can get involved?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I hear from pharmacists a lot that they they're frustrated with the with the profession they live in because the industry that within it within they're they're situated, they say it's all about money. It's all about money. Well, you know what? It is all about money. <laughs> yeah. And and so if if there's no margin, there's no mission. Okay, we said that earlier. And so. For provider status, what it means is that you're inserting incentives in a place that they don't exist today. And what we're talking about are the clinical services that a pharmacist can render. It is insane and backwards that we have a definition of who a provider is federally, and pharmacists are not one of them. Everybody is a provider, essentially, except (laughs) pharmacists. All right, and it, it, pharmacists should take great offense at the idea that they would not be considered an eligible provider. Now granted, there's a lot of benefit to society, a lot of benefit to the patient, a lot of benefit to underserved communities, but there is a philosophical premise here that pharmacists should be very motivated by, and that is you are a medically trained professional. All right, you have more pharmacological training than any other healthcare provider. You should be recognized as such. And so it's very exciting because of the health care transformation that can happen because of how we change incentives, because we should not expect CBS, Walgreens, Walmart, all the way down to Jim and Jane's pharmacy to pivot their business models to offer services that they are not compensated for. So now we're reinvigorating pharmacy. We're building infrastructure through finance for pharmacists to start offering a higher standard of care to patients. So that's exciting. And, and, and you know, I, I feel like 2021 is very different than 2017 and the other years past.
1: Yeah. And I think, like, you know, we alluded to earlier, I really think the the pandemic highlighted that when we saw every single governor order places to shut down at some level. But pharmacies had to stay open no matter what state you are in. That just showed how truly essential and in-demand our talents' education levels are, as well as, obviously, the medication we have. So uh, kind of giving the listeners a call to action here. APHA has really been communicating very well on this. If you guys want a good website to go to, obviously, pharmacist.com. But more specifically, pharmacist.com slash advocacy slash issues. It will pop right up there. And you can find some some more ways that you can uh, get involved or kind of follow this Moving legislation with it, there also have some ways that people can reach out to their congressmen. I highly encourage you actually to go call them, and you can look them up by just googling their name and put in, you know, my senator or my uh, House representative member's phone number, and it'll usually be a drop-down menu. You put in your address, and it'll pop right up. On top of that, though, again, APHA has that on there, and they also have a one-click form where you can basically put in your information. It'll tell you who your senator or who your uh, House representative member is. You send it off, and then they are now notified that, yes, I care about this, and here's why. And you can even add a little bit in there. So, so I highly encourage you to follow APHA on this. They're really leading the way. Uh, Scott Knorr and, obviously, Antonio are doing amazing things with that. So, Antonio, what else do you have to say for listeners so they get involved?
0: Look, uh, you know, just be active. You know, If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Uh, this is a great opportunity to move the profession forward, provide a higher standard of care in pharmacy, uh, and start realigning incentives for the better. So I uh, highly recommend that folks engage their, their members of Congress, talk to friends and family about these types of issues. Uh, it's, an, it's an exciting time. And, I, and look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause. I'm going to give you a, a little bit of credit here because, you know, Eric, you had Senator Matt Dolan on your show not too long ago, who was the chief bill sponsor in Ohio for provider status. And I think the feds saw that podcast, they listened to that podcast and said, well, damn it, we need to step up now too. So, kudos to you for all that you've done to promote all of this stuff. I mean, it is, uh, you do remarkable work on the podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thanks. I am too humble to ever take credit for that. There's smarter people in the room than me. I'm just <laughs> one who has a voice. So, and we'll do that every time I can if I think something's right, whether it's pharmacy or not. That's just who I am. But thank you so much for that, Antonio. And as always, listeners, check the show notes out. I'm going to have a lot of the things I mentioned right there in the show notes for you to click. And thanks for listening to Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.